Angry words. I appreciate Brother Steve leading that song before the lesson because our lesson certainly deals with words tonight as we continue our study of the epistle of James, the gospel of common sense as it has been called. So much very practical teaching in this book and very practical teaching in James chapter 3 as we begin that chapter tonight and seek to look at the first 12 verses of of James chapter 3, most of which deals specifically with the tongue, with the words that we speak, and how important it is that we weigh so very carefully those words before we utter them. But in James chapter 3 verse 1, James addresses teachers primarily, emphasizing their great responsibility in influencing others by the use of the tongue. It's a use of the tongue that we have in teaching, but he deals with uh, teachers specifically and then extends his discussion in the verses that follow to include all Christians dealing directly with the abuses of the tongue and the awful evil effects that result from the abuses of the tongue. So we're going to look at the first 12 verses Uh, Tonight, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 3, where James writes, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Here James states the importance of teaching. He states the importance of understanding how how, uh, awesome this responsibility is and why it involves so much uh, preparation, so much prayer uh, before we enter into this kind of, of work. It is apparent that some in the early church desired the attention and influence that was afforded a, a teacher of God's word, but were, were not willing to prepare. James, in effect, is saying, don't rush into this matter. Uh, take it very, very seriously because it is an awesome uh, responsibility. He's not trying to discourage anyone, obviously, from teaching. It's a duty of all of us to teach, for that matter, as far as it's possible for us to do whenever there's opportunity. But we need to make sure that we're able to instruct, that we're prepared to instruct, uh, and prepared to edify. He's not condemning those who are able to teach. He's warning those whose whose motive may be for notoriety. And this is an attitude that must have been widespread in the early church. Let's look at another passage that gives us that indication. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, Paul there writes, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. Now listen to verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So it's evident from this passage that there were those who were not prepared to teach and yet they had that desire to teach. And so a teacher has to be willing to have more than just the desire to teach. A teacher has to be willing to pay the price, the price of thorough preparation. Now not all can be public teachers obviously in 1 Corinthians 12, 17 reminds us that there are different functions in the body of Christ, that if the whole body were the eye, where would the hearing be, Paul asked in that, uh, in that verse. And there are some qualifications that are 
qualifications that ought to characterize all members of the body of Christ and that need to be possessed, must be possessed by all who would teach effectively. We need to understand that, as we've said, all of us have a certain responsibility to do what we can to evangelize. I want to I want to insert something here that I've had in my files for a long time. In fact, it was in the Gospel Advocate back on September 20th of 1984. And uh, the article was written by uh, a C. Bruce White under the title, Only One Talent. And I think there's something uh, very sobering in this uh, brief uh, article. He writes, it has been common for us to interpret the talents of Matthew 25 as abilities. Most every preacher has used this analogy. Let's use that presupposition for this article. The Lord has given us abilities to use by which he will judge us in the final analysis. To some he has given many, to more he has given few, and to most only one. The judgment will measure what each person has done with his ability. It will not be that the person with one can measure the group action for justification. Quote, Lord, you gave us eight and we now have 15, end quote. No, each one is defined in reference to the use of his ability. It is the one talent to which I address myself. It is the one talent, notice, to which I address myself. If the Lord gave only one ability, what would it be? It is important to recognize that this talent is being given by God. It should be recognizable in the scriptures, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures given by inspiration of God furnishes us completely for every good work. So whatever that one talent is, it's got to be revealed in scripture. So then he goes on, let us apply logic to the problem. God has given a general command to his people, Mark 16, 15 and 16, go and preach the gospel to every creature. The only action that is consistent in the lives of Christians in Acts 2 through 8 is they preach and teach the gospel from house to house and daily in the temple, Acts 5.42. We are striving to be like New Testament Christians in the restoration movement and follow the teaching of the Bible. Now, if God expects every Christian to teach, and New Testament Christians did, and we are striving to be like New Testament Christians, then what do you suppose the one talent would be that is peculiar to every Christian? Someone says, my one talent is leading singing. My response, you are a two-talented man. Someone says, but I just can't go out and visit. My response, you have buried your talent and are afraid. You must try. I am totally convinced, he writes, that the majority of this generation is going to be lost because we haven't developed the one talent that God gave us all. If he had not endowed us with the ability to visit and teach, then he would have planned a clergy to do it. But he commissioned every Christian to the ministry and each one will be judged by the use of that talent. The church is in a desperate situation and we can't afford the luxury of having members who do not win souls to Jesus. 
let's all realize that God has given out the talent and he will come to measure the use which I have made of that ability. I must have souls to show the increase. I think that's a sobering argument, but I cannot argue with the truthfulness of it and the logic of it. Now, that doesn't mean all of us are to be public teachers or can be public teachers, but what he's writing in that article is that we all must be soul conscious and that everywhere we go, we go with the word of God and with a determination to influence others through that word, not only by our actions, but by our teaching. And we should all study and give diligence to show ourselves approved of God ultimately in the final judgment, but also to study so that before we reach that final judgment, we are capable and confident of doing all that we can to lead souls to Christ. You know, those who do take upon the responsibility of teaching in the public sense, they certainly are going to have a heavier judgment. And that is an awesome responsibility, and that's James's point here primarily in verse 1 of James 3. Don't rush into this. You shall receive a stricter judgment, a stricter judgment. Those who teach falsely are going to be condemned. When you think about what the Lord said in Matthew 18, for example, in, the terms of, in terms of influence, in verses 6 and 7, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And think of those who offend, who cause others to stumble by their teaching by their leadership. Leadership involves responsibility. Now, on the other hand, whereas a stricter judgment awaits those who take upon the role of, of teaching, there is also a reward that is a great reward as well. Rewards that you see in this life and rewards, of course, in the next life. Remember, we've talked about before expressions like uh, brethren, beloved, and longed for, my joy and my crown. Paul's words to the Philippian church in Philippians 4 and verse 1, my joy and crown. To the Thessalonians, what is our hope or crown of or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are my glory and my joy. In other words, when I see you whom I have taught, when I see you whom I have influenced, stand with me approved of God and Christ in the judgment, I will have an added joy, a greater joy. What did John write? Greater joy have I not than this, than to hear my children are walking in the truth. And so, yes, those who, who make an effort, those who do take upon themselves that responsibility and discharge that responsibility faithfully throughout their lives have a reward that is truly greater than any earthly reward that could ever be given. Daniel said that they that are wise shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12 and verse 3. All of us, all of us should be desirous of becoming more proficient in the word of truth so that we can do what we can, where we can, as we have that opportunity. 
But in terms of those in the New Testament time who were eager to take on the role of public teaching in the Lord's kingdom, James says, weigh it very carefully. Take it very seriously and prepare for it very thoroughly because it is an awesome responsibility. But all of us should desire to become more proficient in the Word. You know, we're going to answer in the judgment not only for what we know, but for what we should have known. And ignorance is not going to be an excuse when we stand before God in the judgment. So we need to keep applying ourselves to the Word of God. And as we do, we'll be better able to control the tongue. And as we look at the next verses, then we see how important it is and how much James has to say about the tongue. For we all stumble in many things, verse 2. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Here James says we all make our mistakes, and James includes himself. That doesn't reflect on what he's writing here. What he's writing is by inspiration. He's not saying... I could have made a mistake here in what I'm writing. No, that's not what he's referring to. He could have fallen. In other words, he could have gone back into the world himself. He was a human being, but he wrote by inspiration. But we as Christians, we as Christians, though we do stumble, though we do sin, we have that continual cleansing, the provision for being cleansed, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. We'll keep on stumbling from time to time, but he keeps on cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. But notice, if anyone does not stumble in word, in other words, stumbling in what we say, now he's broadening the lesson to apply not just to teachers, but broaden it to apply to all Christians. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. That is, he has reached spiritual maturity. He's not sinlessly perfect. But he's able to bridle the whole body also. What's James saying? That if you don't sin with the tongue, there's no possibility of sinning in any other way? No, he's not saying that. But he is saying that if one can control the tongue, since it is so difficult to control the tongue, then if he has control of his tongue, there's a much greater likelihood that he's going to have control over other sins and other temptations. It simply emphasizes how crucial the matter of the tongue is and how important it is that we take seriously controlling it. Verse 3, indeed, and here's an illustration he first introduces here. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn their whole body. Here, here he's illustrating what he's just said. That is, that to control the tongue, in effect, is to control the whole body. A large horse is controlled by a very small bridle with the bit in his mouth. And then in verse 4, another illustration. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. A small object according to whom? The will of man according to the pilot of the ship. What's the meaning of both the illustrations? Well, if we can control large animals and huge ships with very small objects, then we ought to control ourselves. 
Because if we can show that same control over our tongues, then we can govern our whole being. And verse 5, he reminds us that even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things, see how great a forest a little fire kindles. The tongue, though it is very small, by far not the largest part of the body by any stretch of the imagination, very, very small, but it possesses tremendous potential. It is capable, though small, of talking big. It is capable of of boasting great things. It is capable of exercising the greatest good that one can imagine or the far, most far-reaching evil that one can imagine. What are some of the uses of the tongue in an improper sense? Well, we could talk for a long time about them. Lying is one of them, isn't it? That's one. And there are various ways in which we can be guilty of lying. You know, flattery is really a lie if you properly understand and define flattery. You know, we, we sometimes use that word in a little different sense. You'd say, well, that's very flattering. But if you're say, literally, if you're saying that to somebody, you're not saying, I think you just lied to me. But if flattery, properly defined, is, is really a lie because it's insincere or excessive praise. But we use that term a little differently sometimes, just in the sense of complimenting. What about cheating on a test? What about filing your income tax improperly? What about making excuses for not being faithful to the Lord? What about selling a car that you have for sale without giving pertinent facts to the person who's considering buying it? What about failing to keep your word? All of these are forms of, of lying. Abraham lied, didn't he, on two occasions regarding Sarah. And there's no such thing as a half-truth. One might say, well, that was a half-truth or a half-lie. No, it was a lie. It was a lie, yes. She was his sister, and she was his wife. And uh, they were related, but that didn't uh, excuse what Abraham did on that occasion, two occasions before Pharaoh and later before Abimelech, in lying. What about God's attitude toward lying? Well, if you look at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, you have a very clear picture of how God views lying. These six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue. Second thing on the list, a lying tongue. Revelation 21.8, a passage with which we are very familiar and relate quite often to lying, and rightfully so, that all liars shall have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so lying is one of the misuses of the tongue that is most serious. What about profanity? We live in a world that is filled with profanity. It's very difficult to get away from it in this day and time to some degree or another. It is foul, offensive, corrupt language. It's filthy speech. It's habitual cursing. It's the slang that is so characteristic of so many in our society. And yet James earlier in our study in chapter 2 and verse 12 said this, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by what? By the law, by the law of liberty. Speak and do 
as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. What about tail-bearing? A bearer of tales, a whisperer, a busybody, a sower of strife and discord. The kind of thing that usually begins with the words, have you heard? And many delight in our world today in repeating gossip. gossip the Christian must not be among them. Proverbs 11:13 reminds us that he that goes about as a talebearer, he reveals secrets. A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Conceals a matter. Angry words, as we have sung tonight, friendships destroyed, hearts broken, irreparable damage done due to angry, unguarded words. Words that may begin with the phrase, I don't want to hurt you, but, <laughs> I don't want to hurt you, but I'm going to. We need to be very careful about hurtful words. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. There is an anger that is proper. There is a righteous indignation, but we need to make sure that we make the proper distinction between that and the angry words that are destructive and that can hurt. Backbiting. Speaking against someone or something in a secret manner. Romans 1.30 mentions the backbiters among those uh, listed, hateful to God. It's an individual who will eat you up to your face and tear you to pieces behind your back. And sometimes, tragically, maybe in the church, that is seen as elders make a decision about something. Members may disagree or a member disagrees and instead of talking to the elders personally about it, the individual sneaks around spreading the venom in a backyard manner. Let's make sure we're never guilty of that kind of activity. In a business meeting, that's a time for discussion. That's why we have business meetings here and, and other places I have been and where you have been, I'm sure. And that's the time to voice concerns or to bring up matters and not after the meeting in a way that is not conducive to harmony in the Lord's body. Speak up at the proper time and speak up in the proper manner rather than sowing discord and condemning your soul in the process. That's a part of guarding the tongue, isn't it? How serious is murmuring and complaining? Well, all sin is serious. But many times there have been those who seem to have designated murmuring and complaining as being a little sin. A little offense. There's no such thing. Little termites, little termites do millions of dollars worth of damage, don't they? Indeed. And little sins, as they are sometimes referred to, deteriorate the soul. And what does God have to say about murmuring and complaining? How does He feel about it? You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as the Apostle Paul was calling the attention of Corinthians and our attention as well, obviously, to those who were under Moses and the cloud and the sea and ate the same spiritual food, etc. Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 10, But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8, now let us, uh, nor let us commit sexual immorality, some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Well, you can say, well, here, yes, those are terrible things. I, well, we're not going to be idolaters. We're certainly not going to be involved in fornication. 
Nor let us tempt Christ if some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. How did they tempt Christ, some of them, and destroyed by serpents? Where is that? Numbers 21. What were they doing? Murmuring and complaining. And verse 10 makes it clear. Nor murmur as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Right in there with idolatry and sexual immorality, you have murmuring and complaining. You remember in Numbers chapter 12, God punished Miriam with temporary leprosy because she and Aaron severely criticized Moses, God's appointed leader. And so we need to need to stay away from murmuring and complaining, and that, of course, brings up criticizing as well, which sometimes begins with this phrase, I don't want to be critical, but... And when you hear the but, you get ready for the criticism, don't you? There's a way to properly express concern, isn't there? But we need to make sure it's done in the proper way. Anyone can criticize. Anyone can criticize. And sometimes a good brother may quit a good work because of criticism. We need to make sure we're careful about that. Murmuring, complaining, criticizing, backbiting, angry words, tail-bearing, profanity, lying. All of these are great abuses and misuses of the tongue. But here's one final one with which we'll deal tonight, and that is preaching and teaching false doctrine. Can you think of a, a sinful use of the tongue that is any more destructive than teaching false doctrine. You know, sometimes uh, one lie may only harm oneself, but a false teacher has the potential to influence millions in the course of a lifetime, depending upon how popular that teacher is. And you can think about those who are, are spewing forth that false doctrine in a very widespread manner today, and any number of names would come to mind as you think about that and how tragic that is. The Bible contains many warnings against such. Beware of false prophets, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And that's exactly what these false teachers and preachers are doing. Devouring the flock. Preventing people from entering the flock of God because they have them in other flocks that are built and established by the traditions and creeds of men. And we must, with all of the compassion that we can muster, do all that we can to lead people out of religious error, to do it with patience, to do it with love, looking to our own selves, lest we also be tempted, but we must never sympathize with error. It is wrong, and it has to be confronted, and it has to be condemned. Even so, the tongue is a little member, verse 5, and boasts great things. And then the latter part of the verse, see how great a forest a little fire kindles. How great a forest. He continues, James does, to emphasize the difference in the size, the difference in size between the cause and the effect. The cause is a little thing, the tongue. The effect is a great result. 
meaning great in terms of its scope and damaging. And the tongue is a fire, verse 6, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. The tongue is a fire, figuratively speaking here. It inflicts pain, it destroys, there are effects that follow it. And then he says, and then he says that the tongue is set among our members that it defiles the whole body and then sets on fire the course of nature. The world of iniquity indicates uh, the sum of evil. As the King James renders it, the world of iniquity among our members is the tongue. In other words, it consumes us. It defiles the whole body. The improper use of the tongue can stain the whole body. And that's how important it is. And sets on fire the course of nature. What does he mean? The tongue can affect man's entire period of existence. It can have that kind of far-reaching effect. It's comparable, that fire is, to one other kind of fire. The fire of hell. Think about that. It's a sobering thought that the fire which figuratively issues from our tongues when we misuse it originates in hell and will lead us to hell if we don't learn to put out that fire. We've got to keep that fire put out. Well, how easy is that? Verse 7 reminds us. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Here's his illustration here. All of brute nature has been brought under the dominion of man. You remember back in Genesis 1, Adam was given dominion over all of these uh, beasts. And these, uh, these are tamed. Every beast is tamed. Literally, is continually being tamed. The dominion that God gave Adam over all animals was not limited to him, but it applied to mankind for all ages. And so we're able to subdue the brute creation. We're able to bring it under uh, submission. But man doesn't always control himself. You know, when you break a horse, a wild horse, when you break him, I would say generally he's going to stay broken, isn't he? Once he's broken, he's going to stay that way. But it's a sad commentary on man, this is, and shows his moral and spiritual degradation that he's able to tame the wildest animals, but he cannot tame his own tongue. And that's what James says in the next verse, verse 8, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, does that mean that... If that's the case that we can't tame it, then we're not responsible for it. I mean, something that God has told us that's impossible for us to do. No, that's not what he's saying. Why is it that no man can tame the tongue? The answer is because it's a human tongue. Human nature can easily subdue the animal nature, but not the habitual satanic influence that has moved in and taken up residence because we've chosen to live a life of sin. It does not mean that James is excusing us or that he says God assigns us an impossible task and yet demands that we do it. You can't control it, but I demand that you do. No, that's not what he's saying. He means that an animal, when he's tamed, stays tamed. He's no longer dangerous, but the tongue is a different thing. No tongue can be completely tamed to the point that you can forget about it and never guard it again 
the rest of your life. You may do well for 40 years, and suddenly it leaps out and does tremendous harm. In other words, you have got to maintain constant vigilance over the tongue. It's impossible to bring back the spoken word. It's been illustrated like this. Go from door to door all over town and leave a feather at everyone's doorstep and then go back the next morning and retrieve those feathers that you left on the doorstep. How many will you be able to retrieve? Very few, if any. They're gone, as with the spoken word. Maintain constant vigilance over it because it is a restless evil, as the King James uh, says. Unruly evil, the new King James says, full of deadly poison. Now, in the last few verses for just a few moments, verses 9 through 12, look with me at the contradictions of the tongue. James says here are some contradictions with the tongue. With it, the tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. In effect, how much sense does that make? How much sense does it make to bless God with your tongue, turn around and curse men who have been made in the likeness of God? He goes on, Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. In other words, the Christian is to be consistent, not inconsistent. And there is something greatly amiss when your tongue, you're using it to praise God, but on the other hand, you turn around and you slur or you curse men with that tongue. He asked in verse 11, and here's the illustration, first one. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? If it's a fresh water spring, you can count on it to be fresh water. It's not going to change in the midst of your drinking of it and become bitter while you're drinking. It's going to be consistent. God's creation is consistent in that regard. Same thing is true of a fig tree. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. If it's a fresh water spring, it's not going to turn salty on you right in the middle of a drink. But the situation he's illustrated where we bless God and curse men is absurd. It's absurd. And not only that, it is sinful. The mouth was created for holy purposes, not base and sinful purposes. And so you can't praise God on the one hand with your tongue, curse men that are made in His likeness. How do we do that? Well, we do it in a variety of ways. You know, the etymology of this word curse is an interesting etymology. It indicates that the one who does so feels higher than others. When he curses, the word indicates he is doing something to men that he looks down upon them. And so what you have is that the one who feels higher than others is able to look up to God but down to other men. And how do we do that? We do that with racial slurs. We do that in so many ways where we misuse and abuse the tongue. And as we do that, at the same time we're seeking to use the tongue to praise God. We're not only inconsistent, but we're involved in sin. And so, as we close tonight our thoughts on the tongue from this very important section in James's epistle, 
It's vitally important that the tongue be restrained, and this is a lesson James repeatedly teaches in this great epistle. Why should we restrain it? Because the tongue is a little member, but it's capable of exercising the most far-reaching effects. Because it's the most difficult member of the body to restrain and control. Because it's impossible to completely tame it and then leave it alone and forget it. Because it may jump out at an unguarded moment, therefore you've always got to guard it. It is a world of iniquity because of its potentiality for evil. And if it's unrestrained, it will defile the whole body, set on fire the wheel of nature, as the King James says, and be set on fire by hell, ultimately. That's how important it is, and that's what it can lead to. We need to keep in mind what Jesus said about it. And I say unto you that every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words... Thou shalt be condemned. And the writer of Proverbs long ago reminded us that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up strife. The tongue of the wise utters that knowledge are right, but the mouth of fools pours out folly. And let us heed the teaching of the scriptures concerning the tongue. And you know, one of the best uses you can make of the tongue is to confess that you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's a good use of the tongue, isn't it? And it's something you must use your tongue to do in order to become a Christian. You must believe, repent of your sins, confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to do that. And if you have but need to come home to your first love as one who sinned in a public way and needs to confess that sin in a public way, that's another good use of the tongue to say courageously, I have sinned. If you need to come tonight, plead with you to do so now as we stand and sing to encourage.